Well, first of all, maybe you can pick this up by catching it at the end of the at the end of the exhalation or the beginning of the uh, or the end of the inhalation as a kind of pause, right? There's a lot of long-term breathers in this room. <laughs> Old Anapanasati Wallace from decades back. So you know there's a as a, a space at the end of the out-breath and the end of the in-breath. And so that, may, you know, first of all, maybe we just notice the space there. But then you, if you extend it, you begin to notice that, that that spaciousness, that stillness, is actually still there as the breath flows in, flows out. But there's a kind of internal spaciousness of the, of, of the mind, which is unobstructed by the, the movement of the breath. So you take a very simple, plain, internal object like that, first of all. And you can extend it with a walking meditation, which I, I like to do, so that uh, you you standing still, and then you can have your eyes open or closed, but just, first of all, noticing that all of the sensations of your body are known within your mind. The feeling of the feet on the ground, the body standing, the feeling of the air, and, the, and so on. That's all held within the, the mind. It's all known within the mind. And then it can take a few minutes to really get that and just have that established. And then just letting the body start walking. And oftentimes, you know, when we're walking, we're going somewhere. And as soon as you've got decision making in the picture, then it gets complicated. <laughs> but essentially, it's no, it's no different. And so walking meditation, you know, is very systematic because you're not going anywhere. So it simplifies walking a lot because you're going absolutely nowhere. It's completely pointless. So you're just letting the body walk and you're using it as an opportunity to, to witness the body walking without going anywhere. So then, as the body walks along at a gentle pace, you begin to see that even though the body's moving, the mind which knows the body is not moving. Movement does not apply to awareness. The awareness is the mind is perfectly still and the body, the, the, the movements of the body, just like my hands, they're, they're moving, but the mind which knows the movement isn't moving. Right? So then you begin to see, ah, oh, look at that, there's stillness, but there's flowing. The body flows, the perceptions flow, but there's stillness. And, you, and then as soon as the mind kind of grabs it and you're going somewhere, then the oil and the water are mixed up. You're, there's me going someplace. But in that moment of, of recognizing, oh, look, the stillness of the mind is utterly unaffected by the movement of the body, or the wind in the bay trees, or people passing by. Aha! In that moment, then uh, we've, we've seen that, that, that quality, there's a, there's a quality of freedom. That which is moving is not self. That, that which is moving is, is um, the, kind, the, 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 um, the aspect of, of flow and change, and it's and the heart naturally takes refuge. That quality is stillness, spaciousness, openness. So we start to do it with these simple exercises, and then you expand it. And actually, I find this um, uh, meditating with the eyes open is really helpful in this respect, because I, I fully confess, I run away from having my eyes open. <laughs> I really like my internal space. I love the back of my eyelids. When I meditate, I don't get any visions, no colors, no nothing. It's really boring. I love it. <laughs> it's just, just the uh, kind of nondescript gray. It's great. <laughs> 
because then I don't have to deal with the outside world. <laughs> I can, there's a few, a few noises and this and that, but basically I can kind of ignore it all and I can just have my own internal space. But then with the eyes open, there's more of a challenge to exercise the same kind of quality that I normally would do just with walking meditation, uh, if I'm doing it as a deliberate practice, to just have the eyes open and to hold the, the space of this room as something, you know, the coming and going of people and a gentle kind of swaying of the bodies, kind of in the breezes of the afternoon. <laughs> Actually, uh, yesterday a lot of people were wearing blue. <laughs> it was really interesting. There's a, a strange number of blue shirts and dresses and things. And I was just like, oh, it's just like watching the kind of ripples on a lake. People just kind of shifting this way and shifting that way, kind of moving down and little wavelets. No, it didn't get a whole kind of wave across the room, but <laughs> just little sort of ripples here and there. But just letting the, 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 uh, all, of, all of us kind of come and go uh, and be held in that space. So that there's this you know, a kind of conscious um, experience of like the conventional truth and ultimate truth. That there's, this, there's the ultimate view of you know, no person, no time, no space, the, the, of, of timeless knowing, radiant, and radiance, and, and then the convention of you and me here and there, sitting, walking, coming, going, are totally interfused, the one not obstructing the other. So it's a way of, of directly experiencing that, so it's not just a kind of an abstruse philosophy, but something that we can taste and then see the value of. Because certainly for, for myself, in that moment of really getting that, I thought, oh look, the body's moving, the world's coming and going, but it's, it's absolutely going nowhere. And, and it's also, you know, you don't have to be walking in slow motion for this, you can actually run. <laughs> you, can, you can find the same quality uh, whilst you're, you know, moving at high speed, even racing along the freeway. <laughs> Any questions so far? Oh, maybe someone else. Yeah, there's one back there. Well, they are in some respect. It's, uh, but it's more important as seeing the effect of, of working with it in that way. And don't think that dualism is an evil. I mean, all terms are relative. But when you actually make that change in yourself, what happens? Like right now. If you, if you, if you make that recognition, what happens? Actually, what happens is that the objects become purified. So like, like in that poem of W.B. Yeats, is the mind settled like a long-legged fly. The mind settles on the moment like a long-legged fly landing on the surface of the water. You know, the mind lands on the moment and distorts things, so we can't see clearly. When we're actually completely open in that way, and we're just fully with um, experience, it's not like you've blotted everything out or you neutralized it. It's like, finally, you're with the real thing. It's like, oh, look, how beautiful this room is. Ah, suddenly it's, 
when you all the all the beings have become dharma dharmas and dharma then it's like oh it's a buddha land hey this is great as soon as it's me trying to get my meditation together or me trying to wipe out the objects then it's dukkha land so it's actually that um, that recognition um, is like a kind of radical breaking free from confusion and what the result is is a extraordinary beauty and also a sensitivity of response it doesn't make one kind of indifferent to the world around or indifferent to your own internal states or the health of your body or whatever it actually renders you uh, utterly sensitive to to respond to the, the you know the the internal and external world with a with a clarity and a a skill that you can't do as long as your mind is caught up in preferring this and fearing that and liking this and disliking that. Jack. Oh, this, there's a Jack behind. Unless you're Jack, there's another Jack behind you. Yeah. The first line was, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita. Do I need to say more? (laughs) Whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita. Paramita is like the spiritual virtues, like um, uh, generosity, virtue, renunciation, energy, wisdom, patience, honesty, resolution, kindness, equanimity. <laughs> ten paramita. It's the one thing that the Theravadans have more of than the Mahayanas. We've got ten, they've only got six. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it's what the, what that's doing is recognizing that that the state of love and the state of hate are both um, uh, ways that that we we easily that seem very real to us, and where we easily lose our balance in life, and rather than um, slipping into the judgment of I love it, therefore it's good, and I want it, and it should be mine, and I'm fear that, I, and I'm afraid that I'm going to lose it or not get it, or the, or hate as it's bad and it's wrong and, and it shouldn't be this way, and and uh, he has no right to do that, and how dare he? And believing that it's like not letting the heart slide into those beliefs, but recognizing, oh look, I really love this, isn't that interesting? Oh, I really hate that one. Aha, uh-huh, look at that one go. And so seeing primarily the reactivity of the heart rather than dwelling on the objects that the reactivity chases after or runs away from. So that Ajahn Chah talked, as you know, talked 
a lot more about building paramita than, than um, uh, becoming enlightened. You know, he actually he talked about about enlightenment very very little. He didn't he didn't like to use that language because he he saw that when people got very attainment oriented, they kind of went a bit funny. <laughs> and everyone was like, you know, who's going to get there first? And and creating an idea of enlightenment and trying to chase after the idea that you've created, you know, rather like which can be just like chasing your own shadow. So he felt he found over years that it was actually much more skillful just to talk mostly in terms of opportunities to build paramita, opportunities to be patient, opportunities to be generous, opportunities to be honest, opportunities to to be resolved, you know, to to be resolute. And that by cultivating the paramita, like by sort of doing all the necessary and building the right skills and muscles, you know, when that you're, you're gathering all of your um, forces, your whole kind of repertoire of skillful means, and so that then you're setting the causes for enlightenment in place. Rather than obsessing on the idea of enlightenment, you're creating all the right causes for enlightenment. So that, you know, with all of the, the um, causes and conditions kind of ripe, then it doesn't take much for, for the insight to, have, to catch and then to, for it to have a lot of fuel to feed on. Well, yeah, every analogy is partial. I mean, actually, as I was using that, I felt that's pretty useless. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, the yeah, the knowing mind. Um, in a way, I, I experience it more like a, a kind of. Um, Uh, a luminosity, a kind of a radiance that, I mean, there's no thing in nature that, that quite matches, how, at least how my mind frames it. But it's as if it was something that was both a light which illuminated space and yet, and which also at the time, same time was totally receptive to everything in that space which it illuminated. So it's as if... Um, uh, it was a, a, a kind of, um, yeah, well, you know, like a, a sensitive light. You know, that the, um, the whole way of, of making analogies, you know, uh, I'm certainly not, as, not that skilled at it. As some, but you know, every analogy is really just trying to kind of point to something that you, in, in your intuition, already know. And so that uh, every analogy is, you know, as I said, is only partial. Um, 
And even if it's an allergy that doesn't quite hit the mark, the very fact that you know that that doesn't quite hit the mark is a, is a, is a good thing. Because then you say, well, that's not quite it. He said, screen, it's, it's not that. Because when I experience knowing, there's, there's this and there's this and there's this quality there as well. So even though it's a, a bad analogy, it kind of pulls you into the direct appreciation and finding your own ways of figuring it, which is the important thing, actually, the, you know, the clarification of it within yourself. Mm. Yeah. In a way, it's more like, to me, that, that when, I, when I say the word knowing, what, what appears in my mind, what comes into my mind is a kind of, a sort of radiance, a kind of bright, um, and also joyful. There's a kind of uh, emotional quality there as well, which is like delight. Not sort of, <laughs> but a kind of quiet delight that's, that's part of that. That um, uh, the um, if you could pass my bag. Let's see if I can find one of my quotable quotes. <laughs> of course, there's no index in this. I never got that far, but uh, oh, here we go. That light whose smile kindles the universe. That light whose smile kindles the universe. That's from Shelley's Ode on the Death of John Keats. That beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not. He's quite a Buddhist, eh? <laughs> which through the web of that uh, that sustaining love, which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea, burns bright or dim, as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst as each are mirrors of the fire for which all thirst. That light now beams on me, consuming the last clouds of cold mortality. Get tingles. <laughs> Shelley. So. Okay. Sorry?
Yes and no. <laughs> well, it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, the, the Rinpoche was using this word dharmata, right? Which he translate, or at least the Tony would translate as isness, right? Um, uh, in the Thai language, that word becomes tamada, which means normal, ordinary, dharmata. So that, and it's come from the same Pali word, dhammata in Pali. So that is this kind of amazing way which that which is, uh, you know, an extremely subtle and transcendent quality is also um, the ordinary household word for ordinary, for normal. Tamada, ben tamada, it's ordinary, normal. So that um, there's a clue there, (laughs) a massive clue that that which is absolute reality is in fact <laughs> closer, the, to your, closer you are than you are to yourself. Closer to you than you are to yourself. And that, so that one of the ways that, that is, you know, that, that I like to talk about this, and this came up also the other day when um, someone was asking, well, how do you know the ground? How do you find that? How do you know that? And and so that what Rinpoche has been saying about the gap, like, like the, the gap between thoughts. Well, similarly, it's like what I was saying about the breath, you know, like the gap between the beginning and the ending of the breath, the gap between thoughts. Essentially, it's the same thing. Also, one of the other really good gaps is the gap when the bell goes at the end of the meditation, or the non-meditation. <laughs> you know that feeling when the bell goes? That's it, because <laughs> you've stopped even non-meditating. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> Ideally, that's what you're doing the whole time. But even when it's kind of n- the not me doing the non-meditation, <laughs> and the not me not doing the non-meditation, and not here, and no time, and nobody watching, Still, <sighs> so that you know, the, it's that gap of of um, where uh, in that the things, the, the kind of doingness, which is the primary, well, one of the primary things that obscures reality. At that moment, the doingness is laid aside. And then, so like, in, or similarly, in the gap between thoughts, it's like before one, you know, one story is finished, the next story hasn't begun. It's like, ah, you don't get gaps between TV programs anymore. But, <laughs> but you know, that kind of, it's just also like this, the, 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 the feeling when the, the, um, the motor on the refrigerator turns off. You didn't notice the noise was going until it goes off. And you go, oh, that's it. It's the same thing. Or that feeling when you walk into a room and you, you forget what you went in there for. Oh, that's it. <laughs> you know, before the, the kind of, God, I'm, this is, you know, half timers already. This is, you know, I'm really losing it. You know, before the judgments come in, in that moment, you know, nothing, it doesn't seem like anything remarkable. 
But it's like, and I think Rinpoche was quoting Milarepa when he said that the, in the gap between thoughts, there is the, possibi- the possibility of experiencing true reality. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So that... <laughs> so that it's like making use of that gap so that the um, a number of years ago, and the first time I, I started really using this was um, Ajahn Sumedho. This was a, our monastery first began in England, and it was the first community retreat together. And he started teaching this um, meditation on the question, "Who am I?" And uh, and so that we were a few days into the retreat, so everyone was pretty focused. And he said, "Okay, now everyone's concentrated. Now just ask yourself the question clearly and consciously." Who am I? Who am I? And then he said, and notice, before the verbal answers kick in, there's a gap. Okay? At the moment of asking the question, the normal self-creative processes are tripped up. They, they kind of, they, they short out. Their, their program is disrupted. So he said, that's the gap. Aim at the gap. Put your attention on that gap. So then in exactly that way, you, you use a, like a question like that um, because it's an impossible question. Or then you can shift it to what am I or what is it that's experiencing, who is it that knows. You, know, you, you can shift the wording to keep it fresh. But the whole point is you ask those kind of questions to make the gap more obvious. You, kind of, you, you set it up to get a really good gap. Because, hey, you know, you've got to get the odds in your favor somehow. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then, by asking an impossible question, like, what is a human being? What am I? What is the I? So, okay, in that gap, there's awareness, no sense of self, peacefulness, and no time. So that it's like, okay, that's the gap. Let yourself, let, let the heart rest in that space. So, first of all, in what happens is that that seems totally insignificant. Just as um, even if you, you, you don't establish, you know, you don't use that kind of meditation, even if you find just um, trying to concentrate on your breath or doing an ordinary you know, concentration practice, even at the moment where you, you realize you've become distracted and you realize, oh, Peru. I'm not in Peru. I'm Spirit Rock. Aren't I? Yeah. Yeah, Spirit Rock. Right. Yes, here I am. And then uh, you, you realize you're distracted and then you go, ah, let go. Okay, where was I? Right. Okay, where was I? Right, the breath. And then you kind of get back to your meditation program. But in that moment of letting go, say, ah, you come out of the dream. And in exactly the same way, the kind of the grasping is finished. It's like, you know, you're off sort of planning your trip to Peru and then it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, I'm supposed to be meditating. Oh, right, okay. I'm hanging on to this idea, this plan. Oh, okay, relax. So, and one of the things that Rinpoche is talking about, about being busy with meditation, is that 
that space looks so insignificant that we're busy with our meditation program. You might slip in a little bit of self-criticism there. Like, oh God, I'm so stupid, I can't get this together, I'm really restless. And you get back to the meditation and you miss that gap. You miss that space. Hang on, let me come for a bit. But the point is actually that space is the opportunity to see through into reality. So that, I mean, ideally you're using meditation without obstructing that, a meditation practice, but it can easily be something that distracts you from that, that quality, from that reality. So that, like in those gaps that open up in our daily life, in our thought forms, um, just as I say, you know, when, when a loud noise shuts off, um, whatever it might be, like right there, oh, there's a space. There's the opportunity to see through into that reality. Now, the, most of the time we don't take that opportunity because it looks like nothing. It's ordinary. It's tamada, right? It's tamada. It's normal. It's boring. There's, no, there's nothing there. So we get on to the next thing, the meditation or whatever it might be. But the clue is that yes, it's, it's normal. It's tamada, it's dharmata, it's isness, right there. So that, like in the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, each, for each of the Four Truths, the Buddha described a way in which they need to be worked with. So, suffering, dukkha, is to be apprehended, like to know this is dukkha, this is unsatisfactoriness. The cause of dukkha is to be abandoned, like self-centered craving, is to be let go of, relinquished. Okay, the fourth truth, the path, is to be cultivated. The third truth, I, I do them in the wrong order deliberately, the third truth, dukkha niroda, the cessation of suffering, is to be realized. And what that means is that when, when, when dukkha stops, like you're kind of clinging to something. Oh, what am I doing this for? This is really horrible. Stop it. Oh, okay. Right, now what's next? You don't notice what the ending of suffering is like. Because it, it looks like nothing. So you immediately get on to the next interesting thing. It's like racing through an empty room because you're busy going somewhere or getting down to the end of your meditation path, you know, doing your walking, going somewhere. But actually, if you let your mind notice the quality of what is present when dukkha, no matter how subtle or coarse, when that dukkha evaporates and ceases, if we let ourselves notice, then at first it seems like ordinary, like blank, nothing. But it's just like any kind of space, if you just let the, the heart open to it, then that space suddenly gets kind of brighter and richer and, oh, oh, this is very nice. Ah. And so ordinariness has just turned into isness. And in fact, it hasn't turned into it. It's just you were so busy, you only caught the superficial characteristics. But if you just op let yourself be with it and open yourself to that, you realize when, there's, when the suffering stops, there is suchness. There is the experience of reality. There's 
purity, radiance, peacefulness. Ah, home. Good. Like. <sighs> so it's there all the time if we just take the trouble to notice it. But because the ending of suffering doesn't catch our attention because we're so busy with doing this, we, we miss it all the time. So that's actually almost the most important of all the four truths, to realize Niroda. Otherwise it seems inconsequential. Can you follow that? Well, it's absolutely. I mean, I, I use that example, I and mean, anyone who's been on any of my events will be thoroughly bored with the number of times I use that as an example. Am I right? Who's a familiar <laughs> student of mine? I bore people to death almost every day long. I do. I use that because at that moment, sometimes you don't. Know, often you don't know where you are. Sometimes you don't even know what you are. And it's like you have to wait for a few moments as the person is assembled. Right? That's it. That's because you're not a person. <laughs> That's right. The person has to be assembled. It's like, quick. Okay. You know, if we don't assemble it, it's not there. That's, that's the whole bizarre trick. So I, I, seriously, I use that example over and over and over as a daily experience of the fact that, that we are not people, essentially. That the persona, actually the word person means a mask. Persona in Latin means a mask. It's like the, they wear in the theater, like Greek theater. It's called a persona. That The sona, the sound, goes through, per persona. You talk through the mask. So it's here in our, the clues are there in our own language. But it's like what we, what can happen with that? And uh, which is you know, part of us, you know, the heart says, hey, great, free space. Meanwhile, the ego goes, no, I don't like it. I don't want it. This isn't happening. Let me out of here. Quick, create a diversion start a fire, fall in love, change, move house, get a new job, do something. Take on a new practice, join the Tibetans, join the Theravadans, join the Christians, anything. Because when it meets with that, when the ego meets with emptiness, it responds with terror. Because that, in that domain, it has no power. So in the domain of the the body and the personality and the sense world, then the ego is used to being the kind of the one in charge. You know, this is who I am, I run my life, I go here, I go there, I do what I like, this is me, this is my, this is my hopes, my fears, my problems. But as the heart opens to that reality of vastness, the heart experiences it 
uh, with with wonderment and goes, ah, right, home at last, great. But the ego sees like, you know, it's like the clock's ticking down to the millennium. <laughs> it's like days are numbered. My, you know, I, I'm no longer in power. I, my my reality is threatened. And so the ego is like any kind of, um, like an animal, like any kind of living being, uh, like an animal or a young child. And when its, its, its dictates or its wishes are threatened, it panics. It kind of throws up all kinds of things, like a child when it doesn't get what it wants. It starts to make a heck of a lot of noise, right? Usually. Or it goes and sulks, or it starts a fire. Or <laughs> you know, that's what we do is that we, we are desperate to be. And so the ego thinks, oh, if I'm faced with non-being, then that's the end of everything. Therefore, this is to be avoided at all, all costs. And yeah, certainly I've seen this in myself, that it throws up all kinds of stuff. You know, it's amazing. You know, I remember one, one time I was on a, a long solitary retreat. It's a few weeks into it. And it was, I was sitting there for like, three or four hours, and it was the entire succession of every girlfriend I'd ever had, like one after another. It's like, it was incredible, kind of full color, <laughs> your names, addresses, everything. It's one after another, just like vividly replayed, and I just kept sitting there, sitting there saying, no, 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 no. And after about three or four hours, suddenly it spent, boom, went into, I don't like this, and what about that, and I hate this guy, and what about this one? It just shifted channels totally. Okay, lust wasn't working. Okay, let's try aversion. It's completely shameless. <laughs> Flagrant. Like, totally unconvincing. And it was, I just started laughing. I was sitting on the, in, the, in the forest, kind of down by the lake. I, was, I just started laughing to myself. It was just so absurd. Like, three or four hours of concerted lust effort. And, so, and it's like, ah, oh, forget it, that one's not working. You know, let's try righteous indignation and, and hatred. And so it was obvious that it was just the feeling at the sense of I, desperate to find some place to be. And that a lot of what this work, this kind of work that we're doing here, it can bring that up very easily. Because once the domain of the ego gets seriously threatened, and it'll try anything, you know, like, like we were saying at the beginning, the clinging will take all sorts of different shapes. It's like, oh yeah, I'll become, uh, I'll become a serious Dzogchen practitioner, that's what I am. <laughs> I'm really into non-duality. I really love undistracted non-meditation. <laughs> and diligent effortlessness, that's even better. And so it's got all these kind of high-minded and non-dualistic sort of non um, colors in its paint box now. But it's just basically still trying to create the, the sense of I out of whatever it can get its hands on. So that, that in this kind of work, it's really good to be prepared for that, um, this kind of emotional surges and, and, and uh, lurches the sort of feelings of desperation can come up and just not to be intimidated by them. Uh, it's, and just to, to recognize what, what that is. Most of the time, I mean, obviously different things happen, but this is very, very common. 
as the ego domain is is challenged, and then just coming out of the 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 kind of logic of the ego and just coming into the heart itself and saying, okay, well, how does the heart feel about this? Okay, okay, I, I hear you. Yeah, we really got to do this, and you got to go to Peru, and yes, you know, you should do this, and you got to work that out with your father, and yes, 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 yes. But how does the heart feel about this? And you so you come out of that whole kind of um, reactive ego body, and you come into the to the heart, and then this is what I find every time it's like, this is fine. And you, you begin to just recognize the sound of the ego kind of wailing and champing. And it's not because you hate the ego, it's just, it's just like a deposed dictator. They don't like it. You know, <laughs> just give them a nice little bungalow by the beach and take away their guns and <laughs> just say, okay, just kind of calm down, you're just not in charge anymore, that's all. It's to just enjoy the sea and the sand and the palm trees and, you know, just, just kind of let your life calm down a bit. So it's, that's all that's happening, is you're just not, no longer ascribing authority to the ego to be that ab- around which you build your life, as making it the ultimate reality of your being. So that it's just, you're allowing yourself to operate as a person, to perform as a person. You know, you letting your personality do its thing and, you know, but the also you're happy to not be a personality. Just you can kind of see beyond that, like at the moment when you wake up and you don't know what you are. Say, oh, what is a woman? What's what's a man? Is everything about me male or female? Human. What is anyone? Huh. And that that's the that recognition is not a belief. It's, it's just an awakening to what has always been the case. But because of our preoccupation with our, you know, our physical world and our, our families and our comings and goings and doings, we've missed that. There's a, a lovely, um, just maybe just to finish with, uh, there's a lovely passage in a collection of, of um, teaching stories that Jack and Christina Feldman put together that comes from a book called The Tales of a Magic Monastery by this, this extraordinary Christian being, monk, called Father Theophane. I mean, that in itself is quite a handle to go through life with. Father Theophane. And uh, he tells the story of... Um, so, uh, being a monk myself, there was one question I always wanted to ask. So, when I went to visit the magic monastery one time, I asked, what is a monk? And for to this, I re- to this question, I received the most extraordinary reply, which was, "Do you mean a day in the, during the daytime or at night?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, uh, so then I asked, um, yeah, "What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, like all creatures, monks are beings of expansion and contraction. During the daytime." Uh, they go about keeping their rule and doing all their monk-type things, uh, but uh, during the night, they uh, uh, they expand. The walls cannot contain them. They reach beyond the monastery, uh, out to the stars, and so uh, then I thought, huh, poetry. <laughs>
So I replied, well, in the real world, and then he stopped me in mid-sentence and said, now this is the difference between you and us, because in your world, um, what, you, what you refer to as the real, the real world, we call the body of fear. And whereas you judge a person by all of their comings and goings and doings, we judge a monk by um, how, many, how many people he touches at night and how far he reaches into the stars. It's not verbatim, but it gives you the spirit. The body of fear. enough talk so maybe we could do that we can do the sharing of merit in in uh, student English so it's the uh, oh yeah. on the second page the verses of sharing and aspiration so it's marked page 35. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve, 
The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Actually, I just remember the most the most famous of the um, the characters who the uh, experience this kind of. Um, awakening was Ananda, who even though he'd been the Buddha's attendant for uh, 25 years or so, still wasn't fully enlightened when the, when the Buddha passed away. And there were three months after the Buddha's Parinibbana, they were going to have a, a grand council of 500 arahants. And Ananda, who had re- remembered all of the teachings and was supposed to show up and re- recite all of the Buddha's discourses, Mahakasapa, who was the head of the assembly, the disciplinarian, said, you can't come unless you're an arahant. <laughs> uh, Ananda, was the, as Jack once described, he was the fall guy. You know, the fall guy of most of the Buddhist suttas. He's always the one that the Buddha says, not so, Ananda. It's not that way. So he was a very kind of sweet guy, but a bit of a softy, and always kind of preoccupied trying to make everything nice for all the visitors. So he never really got his practice together. So he's really deeply shamed by Mahakasapa, profoundly deeply. And so all night long, before the, the first council is supposed to begin, he's kind of doing walking and sitting meditation, and, and he's determined, I've got to do it, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. This is terrible. What if I can't make it? It's going to be a disaster. And so finally, as, as it gets towards dawn, he sees the, the light coming into the sky and the leaves starting to, to go from gray to green, the color coming back into the world, he realizes, can't do it. And he's tired and exhausted and finally with a, a large sigh, he kind of, he gives up. And bef- as he left the standing posture and before he assumed the horizontal posture, he woke up. He then entered the assembly three feet above the ground in full lotus. <laughs> Just, to, just in case anyone was in doubt that he'd, <laughs> he'd kind of done the deed. So. so that moment of giving up, but it's got to be a really wise giving up. <laughs> Ordinary giving up doesn't work, right? <laughs>